uh, chapter 25, Living in the Last Days. Let me lead us in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we come to your word that you would speak to us and help us to understand more about you and us and how you work in your world and most importantly about the coming judgment so that we might be prepared and we might prepare others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I have a fear of catching planes. Uh, not of flying, I love flying, uh, but a fear of not catching planes. Uh, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a fear of missing out, uh, but it's aviation style. It all goes back to the very first time I flew internationally. Uh, we were dropped at the wrong airport terminal and we left home without Hugo's suitcase. And so every single photo of that particular holiday, Hugo was wearing the same pair of pyjamas. <laughs> now, he was only one year old, so it was okay, and they kind of looked like swimmers when we were bobbing around in the pool. But ever since that moment, I have had a fear of not catching planes. And so there's a very simple answer to that, and that is turn up to the airport very, very early. Four hours early normally. Um, some people are, are power travellers and they will turn up and they know exactly when they can get straight through and basically not stop walking from the moment they get out of the taxi or car and sit down in the plane and take off. Uh, I'm not that guy. And therefore, my family are not that family either. Sorry, guys. But until I have that moment that I've got the boarding pass in my hot little hand and I'm sitting there and I know everything that's happening, I've gone through security and I haven't had anything confiscated, then when I'm sitting there, I'm in a happy place. But until then, I'm a bit stressed. Now, missing a plane is not the end of the world, of course, but there are some things that if we do miss them, then it is the end of the world. And of course, there's nothing worse than missing out on heaven. And that's the big message we hear today in Matthew chapter 25. It's the second half of what has been called the apocalyptic discourse, chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew. It's a, got a bit of a Daniel or a bit of a revelation sort of feel to it with all sorts of end time overtones. And both chapter 24 and 25 are often considered to be talking about the second coming of Jesus, the, the coming in the future sometime that hasn't yet happened for us now. And most, uh, many, if not most Christians, will think that these chapters are speaking directly to us today as we await that coming return of Jesus. But I actually think that that's not what these two chapters are specifically talking about. In my last sermon last week on chapter 24, I said that Jesus is talking primarily about the catastrophe of the cross and he's speaking specifically and privately to his disciples as they nervously await the death of Jesus. That's all that they've got in their mind. They're not thinking about the second coming, they're thinking about the first coming. And so that is the zone that they're in and that is why Jesus is saying all this stuff to them. And that discussion is recorded for us as we live many years after that moment. His message is to a specific group of people at a specific place at a specific time about their future that is to come. They live before the first Easter. They're living in the last days before the first Easter. 
Now, this is uh, not a popular mainstream view of Matthew 24 and 25, and that is because when you read 24 and 25, it just seems to have a bit of a feel about the, about the final coming of Jesus. And I can understand why, and I've thought that for quite some time as well. And if that's the way you want to understand it, then that's fine. There's lots of great things in there, and, it, and I think it probably works for that. But one of my lecturers at Moore College... Peter Bolt has written a commentary on Matthew that I've been following and uh, it's consistent with the view that he has written extensively about from Mark chapter 13, which is a parallel passage in Mark. And I think I'm convinced by his interpretation of it because he keeps saying, read it as though it was spoken to you at a particular point in history, that it's spoken by Jesus to them at that time before the first coming. And when I think we do that, I think it makes more sense to us. And I think it makes more sense, particularly as he's saying it to his disciples, and more than that, to all of Israel at that point in time, before the first majestic coming of the king to Jerusalem, as Jesus will be doing shortly. And so the big issue here is, how will Israel, God's people, receive her king? And it's all happening in the light of a lot of dramatic Old Testament prophecies that I think are fulfilled at the cross. Some will say they're, talk, they're fulfilled much later on with the second coming of Jesus. I think they seem to make sense talking about the fulfilment at the cross. Uh, I've mentioned to you before the uh, Mount of Olives prophecies from Zechariah. We saw them a few weeks ago as Jesus was on the Mount of Olives and spoke about all the things that would happen then. And I think they're coming true in the first century there. I think the same is true of the Son of Man prophecies from Daniel. I think they seem to come true in the death and resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. So have a look at Daniel chapter 7. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence. He was given, note this, he was given authority, honour and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal, it will never end, his kingdom will never be destroyed. I think that happens at the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. Look at what Jesus says at the very, very end of Matthew's Gospel, which we'll come to in a few weeks' time, but I'll give you a bit of a sneak preview. Jesus says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's what was promised of the Son of Man, and Jesus has got it now. And so therefore make disciples of all the, what? The nations. That is happening now. Baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The Son of Man is given that authority over heaven and earth at the cross. And the way that he rules over all the nations is by his messengers, his angels, taking the news to all the ends of the earth which is what's happening now. And so at this time, the Son of Man is present with us by his Spirit as we await the end of the age. 
I think that makes most sense of Daniel chapter 7 in the light of Matthew's Gospel. But I think there's some other evidence that points to this as well. And that is that Jesus said that the Son of Man would come in their lifetime. When he spoke to the disciples, he's saying, the Son of Man is coming in your lifetime. In chapter 10, back then, Jesus says, when you're persecuted in one town, flee to the next. I tell you the truth, the Son of Man will return, or, or will come, before you have reached all the towns of Israel. Uh, that sounds like it's happening then. A little bit later on, uh, that famous talk in front of the big rock, Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then in chapter 16, a few verses later, Jesus says, the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus was saying to that, to them, talking to humans 2,000 years ago, saying some of you won't die before this happens, seems to suggest that that was something back then, not something in the future for us. Matthew chapter 24, we saw it last week, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this generation will not, take, will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Some people interpret the generation as being thousands of years and things like that. But the plain reading is basically saying, those of you who are around right now, this generation, you're the ones who are going to see all the stuff I'm talking about in Matthew 24 and 25. And I think all of that points to the fact that Jesus is speaking of events that are about to happen, maybe days or weeks or months or years away. And in fact, it turns out to be days. We'll know that soon. Now, it's okay for us to read these verses as though they're talking about the second coming of Jesus, but I think they make more sense to be talking about the first coming of Jesus to Jerusalem. And why that is important is because Jesus is talking about Israel as they await the coming of their long-awaited Messiah to Jerusalem. The warnings that Jesus gives his disciples are the warnings that he gives to Israel. And he's particularly warning Israel not to reject him. He's saying, he's coming. The Son of Man is coming. The servant of God is coming. Don't miss out. And that's what we'll hear today in chapter 25. The bridegroom's coming to Israel. The master is coming to Israel. The king is coming to Israel. And they're at serious risk of missing out on the kingdom of heaven if they don't accept him and don't await him timely. And they'll end up in hell. And so we read this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. What do you think of when you hear of a bridesmaids and bridegrooms? You hear of a wedding. Yet again, heaven is like a wedding banquet. It's not like a board meeting. It's like a wedding banquet. We love wedding banquets. So much joy and laughter and all of the things that come along with it. That's what heaven is described like. It's what Jesus is bringing. But it's also what some, sadly, will reject but what are these ten bridesmaids like? It's a lot of bridesmaids, isn't it? But what are the ten bridesmaids like? Two, five of them were foolish, five were wise. The five who were foolish 
They didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps. But the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. So the five wise ones bring extra batteries for their torches. The five foolish ones think, nah, doesn't matter. You know, he's coming straight away, we're sure of it. And if he doesn't, well, I don't really care. And it turns out he doesn't come straight away. He takes much, much longer than they all expected. And it's midnight. See, the bridegroom is delayed. They all become drowsy. They fall asleep. And at midnight, they're roused by the shout. Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. And all the bridesmaids got up and they prepared their lamps, all ten of them. The five foolish ones asked the others, Hey, can we have some of your oil? Because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop. Buy some for yourselves. Problem is, half of the bridesmaids were unprepared for the delay. They, they were not ready at all for it. But the other ones were ready. They were sitting there waiting. They had extra batteries. But the other five didn't, so they had to go out for a quick run to 7-Eleven for some batteries. But they're too late. Verse 10. While they were going to buy oil, the bridegroom came. And then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was locked. The feast has begun. The long-awaited party has happened because the long-awaited groom has arrived. The celebrations of the kingdom of heaven commence. But then the five unprepared bridesmaids finally turn up with their batteries, their oil, maybe some half-drunk Slurpees from 7-Eleven. But it's too late. Because verse 11 we read that when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, Open the door for us. Open the door for us. Let us in. Is there anyone there? Must have been a mistake. We even call him Lord. We know who he is. And he chose us. Hang on. Hang on. I hear someone coming to the door. It's the groom. Let us in. Hello. Let us in. But he calls back, verse 12. Believe me, I don't know you. The bridegroom rejects those five bridesmaids who fell asleep on the job. He rejects the unprepared bridesmaids. And in the end, because they weren't ready for his coming, he rejects them. And that's the message that Jesus says, verse 13. He says, you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. The disciples, before Jesus' first big coming into Jerusalem... They need to keep watch, as does Israel, of which they're a part. Because they don't know the hour or the day of the coming of the Messiah. And if they're not ready, they might miss out on being in the awesome party of the kingdom of heaven. But then Jesus says another parable to say, make sure you keep watching. He talks about the kingdom of heaven again. Verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. Uh, this master's going off on a long trip. He doesn't take all his money with him because money as paper and wasn't really invented back then, so they just had 
big bags full of silver and he didn't want to take all these big bags of silver away with him so he gives them to his servants to look after he entrusts his possessions with his servants he values them he thinks highly of them and he says look after my stuff and he gives different amounts to different people he says verse 15 he gives five bags of silver to one two bags of silver to another and one bag to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. Does this sound a little bit of a familiar story from the Bible? It's the parable of the talents. Our version doesn't use the word talent. It's funny, talent is a word that we use in the English language to talk about an ability, a gift or something like that. But a talent in the first century was just another way of describing a weight of something, like a kilogram sort of thing. And so he gave five kilos or whatever of silver and two kilos and one. So that's what it's talking about here. And that's why our translation, I think, helpfully doesn't talk about words like talents. He's not talking about their abilities. You know, oh, you can sing, you should use it for God. Or you, you're able to be good at administration, you should use that for God. And if you don't, it'll be taken away from you. I mean, that's, that's a good thing to say and it's a right thing to believe. But don't think that's actually what Jesus is talking about here and in fact as he is basically waiting very soon for his coming death and with all this conflict he's not talking about that stuff he's talking about the fact that well you've got to be ready and you've got to be prepared for when the master comes back well what did they do with the bags of money verse 16 the servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and he earned five more the servant with two bags of silver went to work, earned two more. But the servant we received one bag of silver, dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. Um, the third guy was pretty safe, wasn't he? The first two were a bit more speculative. If you've never heard this story before, you might think, ah, the third guy is the wise guy because he really wants to look after his master's money. And the first two, well, they'll go off and buy Bitcoin with it or something like that. Speculative, who knows, you know, trying to make their money fast. But it turns out that it's not that way. Verse 19, because after a long time, a long time, this is a long time, the master returned from his trip and he called them to give an account of how they'd used his money. So how'd you go with my bags of silver? And what we're about to see is that their attitude to the money showed their attitude to the king. So the first guy who had the most amount, the five bags, verse 20, the servant to whom he entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five to invest, I've earned five more. And the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together it's more party language woohoos and things like that this is what the kingdom of heaven will be like it's about celebrations it's about what happens when the good and faithful servants of the master are there with him and there's great joy great joy as they as they bear the fruit as they wait the return of the master whenever it is that he comes Similar thing happened with the second one. The servant who'd received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest and I've earned two more. And the master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The return of the master brought great joy. 
But what about the third guy who played it safe? Did the master say, well done for playing it safe? Let's see. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. So I was afraid that I'd lose your money. So I played it safe. I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. And before we hear the response of the master, let's stop and reflect upon the way that this third servant speaks about his master. What does he say about him? He says, I know you are a harsh man. Not a particularly nice way of describing his master, is it? And what's more, you're a bit dodgy. You know, you, you harvest crops you don't plant, you gather crops you don't cultivate. This servant does not respect his master at all. And because he doesn't respect the master, he doesn't really care about making his master's money work well, especially if there's any chance that he might cop it in the neck if anything goes wrong. And so he just buries it in the garden and then he pulls it off and he hands it back with no interest, no gain. And if it's many, 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 many years later, that one bag of silver will be worth a lot less than one bag of silver was when he went off. How does the master respond? Verse 26. You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, then why didn't you put it in the bank? At least I could have got some interest on it. He says that the servant is wicked and lazy. It's like he took the master for granted and he didn't really care about extending the master's kingdom. He didn't really care about that stuff at all. He just cared about himself. It reminds us what a lot of people were like in Israel at that time. And this is why I think when we look at it from this perspective, we get a whole new flavour to this very, very well-known parable. Peter Bolt, in his commentary, I quoted him, I mentioned to him earlier, uh, he, he says this paragraph. Let me read it out to you. I think it's a helpful way of understanding it. He says, Despite the exile, nothing had changed. What had Israel done for their master? What fruit had they borne? What advantage had their privileged position been? Now was the time for the harvest to be given back to God. Were they ready to do so? Or had they squandered it all? interesting way of thinking about the parable of the talents isn't it and I think he's right so how does the master respond to the servant verse 28 he ordered take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver to those who use well with what they're given even more will be given and they'll have an abundance but from those who do nothing even what little they have will be taken away sounds pretty hard doesn't it but the third servant did not honour and respect the master. And what's more, he squandered his privileged opportunity to live for the kingdom of heaven. That is exactly what most of the people of Israel had been like in the years after King David. And now, great David's greatest son, the son of man, the son of God, the servant of the Lord, comes along and they're about to reject him as well. But the master's servant, well, 
the, the sentence for him is not yet finished. Verse 30. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Throw him into hell. It's pretty intense, isn't it? The servant who rejected the goodness of the master would be thrown into hell. Jesus says this for a reason. He says to Israel and the disciples in front of him, missing out on the coming of the Messiah is life and death, eternal life and eternal death. That's the warning. The warning, because what will happen to the Israelites if they miss out on the king is what happened to that third servant. Well, finally now we see what's going to happen when uh, uh, the, the third story, which shows what will happen when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Which again, I believe, is talking about Jesus being on his throne, rising from the dead, being exalted, and saying, the Son of Man has authority over all, and away he goes. Verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels, all his messengers with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, all the nations, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He places the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Son of Man will come and the separation will begin. The coming of the Son of Man will bring a separation. And not only will Israel be gathered, but we see here it's all the nations. When he takes his place on the throne, Jesus makes it clear he will divide humanity. Some will be in favour of Jesus, some will be against him. Those in favour are the sheep on his right, those against him are the goats on his left. This was what happens when Jesus sits on his throne, when he becomes king, when the crown of thorns is placed on his dying body, on the throne, which is his cross. And as the gospel is preached through the nations by his messengers, his angels, his evangelists, this is the era of separation. This is the era of division. And how will they be divided? Well, firstly, we see the sheep. Verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Jesus, speaking as the king, talks about the kindness that he was shown by those who followed him. But, but when did that happen? Verse 37, these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing or when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you and the king will say I tell you the truth when you did it to one of the least of these my brothers and sisters you were doing it to me the way that Jesus showed it was showing love the reason that these people showed their love for Jesus it's by showing their love for the followers of Jesus. They show love for Jesus by loving Jesus' followers. 
those who were hungry, thirsty, estranged, naked, sick, incarcerated. Love for those other sheep showed love for Jesus himself. And it's a fresh reminder to us also about the responsibility that we have to show genuine love for followers of Jesus who are poor and persecuted. But judgment will come to those who rejected Jesus, which is also seen by how they mistreated the followers of Jesus. Verse 41, the king will turn to those on his left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And they replied, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he'll answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help even the least of these my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous will go into eternal life. This is the great separation. Some to eternal punishment, some to eternal life. And when the Son of Man sits on his throne, this is the separation that we will follow. And it will mean that some people will miss out big time. Big time. Those who reject Jesus will miss out on the kingdom of heaven. And there's nothing worse. close that time together by singing a song called By Faith.